William Morse and Charlie Piper knew a lot about soybeans. In fact, they wrote the book on soybeans, which they titled, fittingly, The Soybean. Piper was the elder of the two and a mentor to the younger Morse. Back when they met in 1902, Piper was known by his colleagues as the prophet because he always seemed to see the potential in plants before anyone else which was a very valuable skill for him to have, considering that he was the head of the USDA's, the United States Department of Agriculture's, Office of Forage Crops. So Piper was the guy in the U.S. government in charge of figuring out which plants available in nature, in the U.S., and around the world would serve as suitable, domesticable food for our country's grazing livestock. And Morse went to work for him at the very moment that Piper was planning to investigate the potential of growing soybeans for forage purposes, a plant that grew wild in the area and that they were vaguely aware of being used for other purposes elsewhere, but which had never been a thing that was intentionally grown in the country. They began by collecting the varieties they could find around the United States, then domesticated them in little controlled gardens in various climates, They then took the best, most stable, most disease-resistant, most nutrient-rich, most overall growable versions of these soybeans and started distributing them by hand to farmers around the country. Those farmers would then dedicate a few square feet of land to this new crop, happy to help the government test them out to see if there was any economic potential in them. And Morse, Piper, and their people would then go back around and check in on how these test crops were faring from time to time. The book they eventually wrote was the consequence of these initial experiences and the collection of research and notes that were accumulated over the course of the subsequent decade. They published their measurements and observations as a collection of booklets and articles and then aggregated everything into a larger, more cohesive, formal book, The Soybean which was initially published in 1923. Though the book lists both men as authors, the reality is that Morse did the majority of the writing. During its production, Piper was not doing terribly well health-wise, getting up into the years as he was, and Morse had him listed as the senior author of the book out of respect for his work and for his foresight in recognizing this plant for what it was before anyone else in the country even knew it existed much less understood what it could represent, what it could someday become. Far more people would come to understand its potential, though, in the late 1920s. At that point, production of the soybean in the United States was increasing at a rapid clip, and it was reaching a point where the government thought it would be prudent to prepare for a day where the production capabilities had scaled so that there were more soybeans than they currently knew what to do with. In other words, they knew it could be a valuable forage crop for cattle and such to eat, but could they use it for anything else? Could soybeans become even more useful than it already seemed to be? The Dorset Morse Soybean Collection Expedition to East Asia began in 1928 and lasted over two years into 1931. 
During that period, Morse and a man named Palamon Dorset, a horticulturalist who, like Morse, worked for the USDA, traveled around East Asia, visiting China, Korea, Japan, and nearby regions to gather local soybean samples, to engage with local officials and farmers to see how they cultivated and harvested and utilized the soybean, and to generally understand what other cultures did with this crop that the U.S. was intending to produce on a far larger scale. While in the region, they took over 3,000 photographs and wrote over 6,000 pages of notes, which were eventually published as 17 hardcover books. They collected over 4,500 distinct soybean samples, representing around 2,000 soybean varieties and types, and they collected about 250 different food products made from soybeans in these regions, which they then shipped back to the United States. Some of these samples survived the trip, many did not, but thankfully they took notes and photos of these food products as well, along with the detailed notes about and diagrams of the many industrial applications that these other cultures had developed for soybean oil. This entire expedition, which set the tone for what happened next, the soybean industry exploding in the United States, becoming one of our largest, most varied, and use-case-diverse crops, it only cost about $24,000 at the time, which is around $370,000 in today's money. Not too shabby, considering that soybeans were a nearly $41 billion industry in the U.S. alone in 2017. Now, if you know your history, you may have noted that a 1931 end date means the Dorset-Morse expedition finished up right as the Great Depression was kicking off in the United States. The Great Depression hit countries around the world at this time and was the consequence of, according to most mainstream theories anyway, debt deflation, bank collapse, consumer panic, and a substantial drop in economic and governmental confidence. Markets were also beginning to become more entangled with each other at the time, so crashes in a few major markets led to crashes in markets around the world as well. This economic depression was amplified in horribleness, within the United States at least, by a parallel ecological crisis called the Dust Bowl, also sometimes called the Dirty Thirties, which was a nearly decade-long period of dust storms across North American prairie land caused by the combination of rapid industrialization of the farmland there, severe drought, and short-term thinking when it came to how agricultural land in these areas was treated. They basically tried to move too fast. They cultivated it too quickly. And as a consequence, they did not leave enough latent root system in place to hold the soil down when the rains failed to come and the wind started blowing. This led to a period where these formerly high-nutrient farming areas were left desolate. There were not sufficient nutrients in the topsoil. It had all blown away, so even after the dust storms had died down, they struggled to grow anything in these areas for a good long while. Soybeans helped these drought-stricken dust bowl regions to become fertile once more. Soybeans can fix atmospheric nitrogen, which means when they die, or when their shells drop to the ground, they behave like synthetic fertilizer. The development of the Haber-Bosch process, which industrialized the conversion of nitrogen from the atmosphere into ammonia using a catalyst, high temperatures, and pressure, 
is credited with essentially keeping half of the human population from starving to death today. We quite possibly would not have enough food on the entire planet to feed everyone if we lacked this soil-enriching process. Nitrogen fixing allowed crops to grow faster and better, and soybeans, along with some other types of legumes, do this naturally because of a symbiotic bacteria that they like to hang out with. The emergence of soybeans and our ability to produce them in increasingly high quantities helped rebuild the American agricultural industry, while also having been born of that same industry. They figured out how valuable this little bean could be, and then within a few decades of first investigating it and putting the wheels in motion that would eventually lead to its popularity, it turned around and saved that same industry from whence it was born. What I want to talk about today is milk that isn't milk, meat that isn't meat, and at the center of it all, the humble soybean, which in today's economic and political landscape has become a little less humble and a little more central to just about everything. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. If you are in North America and you'd like to come out and hear me speak live, come say hello, get a hug or a handshake, maybe get a book signed, pop on over to becomingtour.com for information about the tour that I am beginning later this week as of the day I'm recording this. I'll be on tour from September 2018 until September 2019, and I will be covering a great deal of geographic ground. So if you are on the North American continent, there is a pretty decent chance I will be coming at least somewhere nearby. And I would love to see you if you're able to make it out to one of these events. And another great way to help support my work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash let's note things. All right, let's get back to the show. The article I want to start with today comes from Vox, and it's entitled Fake Milk, Why the Dairy Industry is Boiling Over Plant-Based Milks. This article, in typical Vox fashion, outlines the main points of this argument very clearly and concisely. It also identifies some of the major players in this rigmarole, including some of the politicians that are involved, like Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin who has been pushing the Dairy Pride Act, which, believe it or not, is a cumbersome acronym for the Defending Against Imitations and Replacements of Yogurt, Milk, and Cheese to Promote Regular Intake of Dairy Every Day Act. And that relationship actually makes a lot of sense based on the scale of the dairy industry in her home state. But her support for it is kind of like seeing Kentucky politicians come out in support of tobacco. Their support doesn't mean that it's necessarily an objectively good and noble thing, and it doesn't mean the world of health science is on their side or anything like that when they encourage greater use of and favorable regulations for their products. It just means that they're trying to keep their job by keeping their local business tycoons and those employed by those tycoons happy. In the United States right now, we are in the midst of a throwdown between the U.S. dairy industry and the collection of semi-adjacent industries that produce products like oat milk and almond milk 
and rice milk. The biggest point of contention right now revolves around the argument that milk is not a meaningless word. There's a governmental standard that helps differentiate milk from other non-milk products. That's what Senator Baldwin's cumbersomely acronymed Dairy Pride Act is all about. That's what a slew of other legal actions throughout the country are about as well. These types of official distinctions that distinguish with legal certitude one type of food from another exist for many different food categories. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Code of Federal Regulations, Title 21, Volume 2, Part 164, Subpart B, Section 164.150, for instance, says that peanut butter is, quote, the food prepared by grinding one of the shelled and roasted peanut ingredients provided for by paragraph B of this section, to which may be added safe and suitable seasoning and stabilizing ingredients provided for by paragraph C of this section, but such seasoning and stabilizing ingredients do not, in the aggregate, exceed 10% of the weight of the finished food. To the ground peanuts, cut or chopped, shelled and roasted peanuts may be added. During processing, the oil content of the peanut ingredient may be adjusted by the addition or subtraction of peanut oil. The fat content of the finished food shall not exceed 55%, end quote. And then it goes on to list references for how the fat will be sorted out and measured, what sorts of peanuts and parts of the peanut may be used, and what sorts of seasonings and other additives may be included within the peanut butter. It further defines how it may be prepared based on the types of peanuts and seasonings that are used, and even how the end product must be labeled if unblanched peanuts, which means peanuts that have the skins still on them while they're being processed, if those are used as ingredients. The same tedious, legalese-laden standards exist for milk. And the dairy industry, the folks who raise cows in particular, but also, to a lesser degree, those who produce other varieties of dairy products, are bustling to get the government to slow the roll of the many non-dairy-based milk-like products that now lie in supermarket shelves. And they intend to do so, in part, by disallowing them from using the word milk. Now that in mind, let's run through some quick and dirty facts and figures to better contextualize this industry. The U.S. cattle milk industry is a $35.5 billion a year giant, while the plant-based milk industry, which may have to come up with a new name soon, comes in at a comparatively piddly $1.6 billion a year. That said, the growth is on the side of the upstart here, and the cattle milk industry is reportedly worried having seen this new competitor emerge more or less overnight. And this competitor has been growing at a very nice clip. They're up 9% overall for the last year, a period during which the cattle milk industry was down 6%. All told, the plant-based milk industry now makes up about 13% of total milk sales. And that is very worrying to animal-derived milk producers. Also notable, and worrying to those same people, is that in the last year alone, plant-based cheese sales are up 43%. Plant-based meat sales are up 24%. Plant-based yogurts are up 55%. And plant-based egg and mayonnaise products are up 16%. What cattle milk producers are hoping to do here is force the plant-based milk producers to stay away from the word milk. They believe that they 
the folks selling animal milk should own that term and that the plant milk people are unfairly benefiting from their branding. They are piggybacking on milk's good reputation, which was built up over the span of generations. To make that terminological ban happen, they are clamoring to get the FDA to enforce the milk standard of identity, which is the legalese, like the peanut butter one that I read before, but for milk, which says quite clearly that milk is, quote, the lacteal secretion practically free from colostrum obtained by the complete milking of one or more healthy cows, end quote, among many other things. But just that small bit of text alone would already require that, for instance, coconut milk producers stop using the term milk. Almonds and oats, likewise, do not have nipples and do not lactate. The whole plant-based milk industry would need an entirely new name. And a lot of individual brands and products would need to completely rebrand while also figuring out how to demonstrate to consumers that their newly named product is the same thing that they were buying in droves before the forced renaming. The other argument being used here, and the one based less on legal pedantry and more on actual practical concern for consumers, is that plant-based milk products do have substantially different nutritional profiles than cattle milk. Milk from animals is a specific combination of fat, protein, enzymes, vitamins, and sugar. This liquid is produced by animals to feed their babies, and most animals, including humans, for most of history at least, do not consume this milk beyond their earliest years of life. Our ancestors, though, evolved the ability to digest lactose well into adulthood. As far as we can tell, somewhere around 8,000 years ago, in or around modern-day Turkey, this mutation became common, and it provided folks there such an evolutionary advantage that it spread around the world in a flash. It became a dominant gene in many parts of the world mere thousands of years later, which is a stunningly, remarkably fast rate for worldwide genetic attribute dissemination. Once it was digestible by adults, milk became a bit of a superfood for otherwise relatively undernourished farmers living during the Neolithic period. All that fat and protein, those vitamins, that energy, it was a huge advantage over people who could not digest it. Fast forward to today, though, and you'll find a lot of people who avoid dairy because of its perceived health risks, because of a sensitivity to lactose, or because of the industry to which it is attached, the larger cattle industry web of sub-industries that forks off into more specific fields like leather and hamburger producers, but which holistically encompasses anything that makes use of domesticated animals as a product. So milk, meat, hides, and even in the eyes of some, harvesting honey from bees and eggs from chickens. Now, I'm not going to go any deeper into that facet of this story for this particular episode, except to mention that part of the reason for why the milk and other animal product industries are on the decline and why alternatives are on the incline is a change in moral perspective regarding how animals are treated, and particularly how animals within these industries, which make use of animals on an industrial scale to create their products, are treated.
Take from that what you will, but it's an important part of the story. Alongside the various health concerns that often catalyze a shift from people consuming animal proteins primarily to consuming part or all plant-based proteins. The other big meaningful shift here, though, has taken place on the other side of this conflict within the plant-based protein industries. The plant-based protein industries have kind of stepped up their game. As someone personally who eats a lot of these types of foods, I can tell you anecdotally that there's a lot to love at the moment. It's gotten a whole lot better over the past decade or so, and it seems to be getting better all the time, still today. And that anecdotal information correlates with consumer data that indicates first that plant-based protein foods have been experiencing and are continuing to experience an upswing in sales. And second, that many brands which have traditionally avoided this space entirely have begun to go all in. Their consumer indicator crystal balls are telling them that plant-based proteins are still trending and will likely continue to do so for the foreseeable future. Now, part of the reason for this seems to be that the technologies used to create these foods and to preserve, package, and ship them has improved. More people are also more skillful in preparing and seasoning them appropriately, and they've done a lot of R&D to figure out where these types of foodstuffs are best utilized in a dish and what textures and colors and flavors are the most pleasant and palatable to the most people. There's also an abundance of less intimidating intro-level plant protein snacks that are now available, which can hook people on the perception of eating healthy, of changing up their diet without making them actually work for it. The plant-based protein world was once a space that required that adherents become more or less their own chef to make all of their own meals if they wanted any kind of sustainable variety in their diet. Today, though, there is plenty of healthy branded junk food available that fits squarely within the plant-based protein circle. And that perception shift and that ease of access when it comes to puffed water lily seeds and kelp jerky can pull people deeper into the fold. It can help them change their mind about what is normal and what is acceptable and what they personally like to eat. And that brings us to another similar story about the conflict over naming rights and what foods get to be called what. Just as milk producers are fighting back against the barbarians at the gate, trying to keep plant-based protein producers from using their milk moniker, so too are players in the meat industry trying to prevent plant-based protein product producers from using the word meat. Their argument is similar to that of the milk producers, that basically these products claiming to be meat are not meat, and it could be confusing to consumers if they were to use that term on their labels. Interestingly, they are applying the same argument to another potential usurper, the makers of lab-grown meat. Basically, meat that is compositionally the same as meat that comes from animals, that's made up of the same proteins and fats and so on, but instead of being grown on an animal, which is then killed so you can harvest the meat, these lab-grown products are grown in kind of lab-like factories, manufacturing facilities where they can grow the same meat materials on kind of scaffoldings and then process those materials so that they have the same texture as the stuff that is grown on a cow or a goat or a sheep. 
Now, this is a weird concept at first, I know, but the mental shortcut here is that you can grow meat on an animal or you can grow meat not on an animal. You can grow it on something else. And the lab-grown meat people are opting for that second option, to avoid harming any animals and to ideally, someday, create cheaper, healthier, more sustainable meat that has exactly the same taste and mouthfeel and texture and everything else. Meat that is, in fact, exactly the same as traditional meat, except that it did not come off of a living creature. It's just a tissue that was grown to be eaten. It's a morbid thought when approached from the wrong angle, but it's something that a lot of people are betting on, especially those who love meat and think that it's important to have in their diet, but who do not want to kill something. And in a lot of cases, people who do not like the massive resource expenditures and horrendous ecological impacts that are often associated with more traditional meat-producing methods. Now, a common denominator in both of these spaces, that of faux milk and that of faux meat, is the soybean. And what's even more fascinating on some levels is that the soybean isn't only competing with milk and meat for dominance. It's potentially competing with hundreds or even thousands of other products in thousands of other industries. The soybean is a crazy, versatile little bean. There's historical evidence that soybeans were domesticated somewhere between 7,000 and 6,600 BCE in China, between 5,000 and 3,000 BCE in Japan, and around 1,000 BCE in Korea. Back in the day, they were considered sacred for their beneficial effects when used as part of a crop rotation cycle, which basically means growing different types of crops on the same farmland season to season as part of a rotation. As I mentioned during the intro, soybeans can fix atmospheric nitrogen, which naturally fertilizes and rejuvenates the soil. So it makes sense that depleted soil, drained dry of certain nutrients due to monocropping, but which then spring back to full effectiveness after a round or two of growing soybeans, that would result in those soybeans being held in pretty high regard, even spiritually high regard. We know that soybeans had arrived in the Americas by the 18th century and that they were introduced in Africa by the late 19th century by China. And each new culture that notices the properties of this little bean does something new and amazing with them. That seems to be a historical fact. In the U.S., for instance, in addition to using them to bring our prairie lands back to life after the 1930s-era Dust Bowl, we turned them into a variety of new industrial and consumer products. Henry Ford, in particular, was a big fan of the soybean. And in 1931, he hired a couple of chemists named Robert Boyer and Frank Calvert to focus on turning it into a wide variety of products. The U.S. government was upping its production of soybeans, was supporting the industry, and Ford wanted to both benefit from that and help prop up the industry in its early days, because he believed in it. Boyer and Calvert ended up developing, among other things, a type of artificial silk derived from spun soy protein fibers. They also helped create a type of soybean oil that could be used in automobile paint, and helped create synthetic soy wood and soy-based plastic polymers, which were used to make plastic car parts. They used soy oil as mechanical fuel inside their car's shock absorbers, and they did early research that eventually led 
other researchers to develop soy-based rubber, surface coatings, solvents, lubricants, and adhesives. East Asian cultures had already done most of the heavy lifting when it came to turning soybeans into fermented cakes and liquids like tempeh and tofu and soy sauce, alongside clever uses of the plant at different stages of maturity, like young seed pods being eaten as edamame in Japan, and sprouted soybeans, because they cannot be eaten and digested raw, being used in some Korean dishes. In the U.S., a lot of our development in this space for a very long time has revolved around how best to utilize soybeans as feed for livestock. And to this day, despite the multitude of uses that we have found for it in the meantime, including as a type of biodiesel, as fermenting stock for vodka, as inks and crayons and soaps and cosmetics, we are still primarily using them for that same purpose, to feed our animals. Soybeans are about 38 to 45% protein and about 20% oil. There's a lot of nutritional value in each and every bean. And as a consequence, about 85% of the world's total soybean output is processed into meal and oil. The former ending up primarily as livestock feed. About 95% of the meal becomes feed, in fact. And the latter sold either generically as vegetable oil or as the fat in processed and packaged foods. Soy has been important, then, to a wide variety of cultures for most of modern history. And in some parts of the world, it's been important throughout ancient history as well. But it's only now finding this new niche as a source of protein that can be reshaped into patties, into cubes of protein that can be flavored and blended with other materials to make faux hamburgers and other meat substitutes, and which can serve up nutritionally rich milk, or milk-like liquids, if we want to get ahead of that impending legal action by the milk industry. It's been used as food for human beings before, throughout a great span of human history, and even into prehistory, but never at this scale, never at this level of ubiquity and diversity. And that versatility is part of why the story of soybeans is in the media today. It's estimated that the United States will produce nearly 125 million metric tons of them in 2018, which is just a hair above Brazil's 120 million metric tons, but significantly more than the third top producer in the world, Argentina's 57 million metric tons. And the rest of the world doesn't even get that close, with China producing around 14.5 million, India producing not quite 11 million, and Paraguay producing close to 10 million metric tons each year. Those are the estimates for 2018, and all told, the world is supposed to produce about 30.4 million metric tons more soybeans in 2018 than it did in 2017. So this is a major growth industry. About half of the total U.S. output is used by local companies to produce things, and as I mentioned before, a whole lot of what's made is feed for livestock. But a steadily increasing chunk of the worldwide supply, including the 50% or so of the U.S. production that is exported, goes to China, which is by far the largest consumer of a lot of things, but that includes soybeans in the world. And they use it, like the U.S. does, primarily to feed their livestock, but they also use it for human food products and for industrial purposes. 
China bought about $12 billion worth of soybeans from the United States in 2017 alone, which is obviously a fairly substantial purchase. The other reason you might be hearing about soybeans in the news these days, though, is a consequence of the trade war that is being fought between the United States and China, or rather, the United States executive branch and China. As many people in the U.S. government and definitely in these industries, do not want this trade war. And China doesn't seem to be too keen about it either. But despite most of the players not being very happy about being engaged in it, there is a trade war, nonetheless. And it started when President Trump's administration slapped tariffs on about $34 billion worth of Chinese imports to the United States to retaliate, they said, for what they consider to be unfair Chinese trade practices. The Chinese retaliated for that retaliation with their own approximately equal-sized tariffs, and included in those tariffs are soybeans and soy products. Part of that targeting was seemingly tactical, an attempt to weaken Trump's support in states where he has been traditionally popular. Just 18 states in the U.S. produce about 96% of the United States soybean supply, and 16 of those 18 states voted for Trump rather than Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election. In the months since that initial round of tariffs between these two countries, an interesting secondary story has emerged, indicating that Chinese officials may be regretting, to some degree at least, the targets that they chose for their counter-counter tariffs. In particular, their farm and cattle industries are struggling to find alternative suppliers in the proper quantities of soybeans so that they can keep that facet of their economy moving forward and growing at the proper pace. A 25% tariff creates a substantial economic burden for those who depend on whatever it is that's being tariffed, and China uses a hell of a lot of soybeans. They consume the majority of the rest of the world's imports in addition to their own production yield. But although some of the gaps left by now more pricey U.S. soybeans can be filled by pulling in additional yields from Brazil and other South American countries, the harvest season is staggered in these countries from that of their neighbors to the north. So even if they eventually are able to pick up some of that slack, it may be months, maybe as much as half a year before they can do so. You cannot really rush a growing season. It's also worth noting that in Brazil, a surge in soybean popularity over the past few decades has led to massive negative consequences in the Amazon region. This is actually a real issue anywhere in the world, where biodiverse ecosystems are cut down to make way for monocultures like fields of soybeans, but it's a particularly devastating issue when it's rainforests being cut down. The Amazon's rainforests contain something like 90 to 140 billion metric tons of carbon tucked away inside those trees and other plants. That is somewhere between 9 to 14 years of our current global yearly emissions as a species. So every time we wipe out a chunk of these sorts of forests, economically sensible as it may seem in the moment, we add massive quantities of carbon into the atmosphere that was previously tucked safely away in these ecosystems. Not to mention all the other consequences of that kind of clean cutting, which I will not dwell on here, but it can be catastrophic for many of the unique species that only live in those specific regions. This 
will be an interesting space to watch, in part because soybeans and soy products are so fascinating, so versatile, so integral to so many other industries, many that are on the downswing, but many that are just coming into their own as well. But it's also fascinating because soybeans and the people who produce them have become pawns on the political chessboard. And it's possible that variables beyond market forces and sheer utility will determine their fortune, will determine their output and the success of their industry in the coming years. And trade war-related fluctuations could have consequences in the burgeoning plant-based protein market, could lead to shifts in political favor for folks producing these little beans, and could even lead to consequences within the milk and meat industries due to the heavy reliance on soy-based feed in the world of cattle and the resultant animal products. The story of soy, to me, is a story of potential. I think it's utterly fascinating how many use cases have been found for this single bean and how much ingenuity has been applied in developing all of those use cases. But the application of external torque can go both ways. It can lead to an explosion in popularity for a particular species, for better and for worse. But it can also lead to that species growth being cut, not because the plant itself is any less useful, but because of artificial constraints that make some other alternative, an alternative that perhaps has not yet been explored and experimented with to the same extent as soy. It can make those more viable options. It could be that in limiting this little wonder bean, we cause more resources to flow to some other legume, some other plant, some other natural resource, which then steps in and serves the same or similar purposes almost as well, or about the same, or even better than the soybean currently does. There are already an abundance of non-milk milks on the shelves, produced using a huge variety of processes and derived from an impressive diversity of sources. We may in the near future see the same across a vast collection of niches that soy has, until this moment at least, largely been able to keep to itself. If you are enjoying Let's Know Things, consider taking a moment to leave a quick review up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth is by far the best way to spread the word about this type of show, and those reviews help a whole lot, so does telling a friend who you think might enjoy it about the show, helping them figure it out if they've never listened to a podcast before, along with sharing the show on your social network of choice. Any and all efforts in this regard are very much appreciated. Thank you so very much. And if you're enjoying the work here that I do on this podcast, consider picking up one of the books that I've written. You can find a list of those at colin.io, and you can pick up a copy of any of them that strikes your fancy wherever you get your books. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Rise of Yeast, How the Sugar Fungus Shaped Civilization by Nicholas P. Money. And this book is exactly what it sounds like based on the title. I picked it up because I've been enthusiastically and happily baking bread for the better part of the last year and truly enjoying it. And I've come to appreciate yeast in particular in a way that I had never even considered it before. And this book gets 
even deeper into the concept than that. It goes into the history of it. It talks about how fermentation in general caused by yeast may have led to nomads way back in the day settling down into villages that eventually became cities, that leavened bread may have emerged as a consequence of early people spilling beer onto their unleavened bread and the nature taking its course. It goes into depth about how yeast is pretty much everywhere and on everything, but there's a huge variety of different creatures living within the yeast family. And interestingly, how yeast essentially gobbles up sugar and to defend itself produces alcohol as a byproduct, which it then suffocates on. And this is what limits the percent of alcohol that can be in particular beverages after fermenting processes, but it's also what keeps other types of bacteria and such from growing within an alcoholic beverage or on a surface that has been coated by alcohol. It's a natural defense mechanism that eventually kills them. It's an absolutely fascinating book. It is not very long, I want to say, 150, maybe 200 pages, a relatively quick read, but still dense with information. If you've ever been curious about yeast, and come on, who hasn't, consider picking up a copy of The Rise of Yeast by Nicholas P. Money. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can also subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter while you're there if you're keen to hear more about what I'm up to. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out more about my upcoming tour at becomingtour.com, and you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of those. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.